Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2010 Schulman Lectures presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center are organized in conjunction with the course Seminal Science and Spectacle in the Enlightenment. In this lecture, Jan Golinski, professor of history and the humanities at the University of New Hampshire, speaks on sublime science in the late Enlightenment, Adam Walker and the Iduranian. Uh, what I'm uh, proposing to do is to read the talk and then we'll have the pictures afterwards and that will hopefully lead us into uh, discussion. Okay, so um, on uh, 19th December 1785, the Reverend James Woodford, vicar of Western Longville in Norfolk, rode into the city of Norwich with a friend. Entering a pub in the city, he witnessed a display by the learned pig. The pig was able to spell out words or answers to numerical questions by indicating cards placed in front of him. He was a star performer of the circus impresario Philip Astley, who was touring him around the English provinces at the start of what has been called his stellar career, that is to say the pig's stellar career, in the 1780s. Woodford paid one shilling to see this show. Then, uh, quoting from his journal, I walked about town and paid several bills and then walked to the assembly rooms near Chapel Field and heard an excellent lecture on astronomy, etc., spoken by one walker with a view of his Iduranion or transparent orrery. Was highly pleased with it. A great deal of company present. I paid two shillings and sixpence. Now, I wish I could tell you more about the learned pig, uh, but I can't. Uh, instead, I want to talk about the Iduranion, or transparent orrery, used to illustrate the lecture on astronomy. I'll try to explain what it was, at least as far as the available evidence allows, and introduce the one walker whom Woodford heard lecture on it. The conjunction with the learned pig is intriguing in some respects, but also possibly misleading. In some ways, the Iduranion offered a comparable kind of entertainment to those who came to see it, but as Woodford's remarks indicate, it was also thought to provide a rather superior kind of edification. The Norfolk vicar found the lecture on astronomy, etc., highly pleasing, and he, along with the rest of the audience, was willing to pay more than twice as much to see it as he paid for the learned pig. So I'm going to discuss the role of the Iduranion in the career of its inventor, Adam Walker. Uh, Walker was responsible for making this apparatus, and in a sense, it was also the making of him. He became one of the most successful scientific lecturers in Britain in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, and he had two sons who followed in his footsteps. His case will allow me to explore some of the links between public science and aesthetics in this period, specifically the invocation of the sublime in a scientific context. Walker's Iduranion was frequently referred to by himself and by others as conveying a sense of the sublime in connection with astronomy. This became a constant refrain in commentary on the apparatus and its presentation. I want to try to work out why spectators described their experience in this way what it was about the Iduranion and how it was shown that evoked this sense of the sublime. I should clarify that I'm not aiming here to contribute to the analysis of aesthetic discourse. 
My interest is not in the systematic treatment of the term, but rather in its casual use in connection with scientific lectures. There were certainly resonances with talk of the sublime in other contexts, in descriptions of works of art or dramatic scenery, for example. But it would probably be futile to try to elicit a single consistent meaning behind all of the deployments of the term. My argument will be that the use of a word that by this point had become a commonplace both revealed and concealed aspects of the experience of those who attended Walker's displays. It revealed its connections to other kinds of spectatorship, for example, in the theater or when viewing scenes of nature, when the passions and the intellect were engaged. But at the same time, it concealed some of the implications of the underlying ideas, including those that were potentially challenging to religious orthodoxy. The use of the term sublime in connection with Walker's lectures thus facilitated his transition between two rather different social worlds, the English provincial enlightenment where he began and the more culturally conservative climate of the Regency metropolis where he ended up. The techniques he developed to give his audiences a taste of the astronomical sublime allowed him to make this transition successfully and moderately smoothly. So to trace Adam Walker's career trajectory is to witness a remarkable social metamorphosis. He was a native of the Lake District in the far northwest of England, born in 1730 or 1731 in the village of Patterdale in Westmoreland. His father was in the woolen textile trade, and the young Walker had very little formal education. He mostly taught himself while working as an assistant teacher at schools in Yorkshire and Cheshire. In the early 1760s, he was running a school in Manchester, teaching writing, geography, and arithmetic. His first publication was a, a primer on family bookkeeping, but he also began giving public lectures on astronomy at this time. By 1766, he'd married and returned to Westmoreland to the village of Kirkland, where his eldest son, William, was born. At this point, he gave up school teaching and embarked on the career of an itinerant scientific lecturer, publishing the first edition of his lecture syllabus at Kendall. He also purchased apparatus for philosophical and astronomical display from William Griffiths, a lecturer who'd been working his way around the towns of the Midlands and the Southwest during the previous two or three decades. Having acquired this apparatus, Walker himself took to the road for several years, traveling in northern England and Scotland and residing for four years in Ireland while delivering courses of lectures on natural philosophy and astronomy. By 1773, he'd settled in York and was beginning to include in his repertoire Joseph Priestley's recent discoveries of new gases. Five years later, he visited Priestley in London and was given pneumatic apparatus to use in his displays. After Priestley moved to Birmingham, Walker visited the town in 1781 and gave a series of lectures with Matthew Bolton, Samuel Galton, and other members of the Lunar Society in attendance. Walker moved to London later that year, settling with his wife, three sons, and one daughter in a house in Hanover Square. In 1784, four meetings of the Coffee House Philosophical Society were held at Walker's home, demonstrating his social connections with the leading men of science in the capital. Though he continued to travel quite widely, 
Much of his work was now done in London, giving private courses of lectures at his house while he or one of his sons taught astronomy publicly in such venues as the Theatre Royal in Haymarket. He also lectured at the major public schools, including Eton, where the young Percy Shelley witnessed his performance. He inducted his sons, William Walker and Dean Franklin Walker, into the lecturing trade, but William predeceased him in 1816, and Dean Franklin was left to carry on the family tradition when Walker himself died in 1821. In several respects, Walker's relationship with Priestley and other members of the Birmingham Lunar Society was critical for his career. The evidence indicates that Walker shared much of Priestley's philosophy of public enlightenment. In his System of Familiar Philosophy of 1799, he wrote that it was the business of science to dispel the darkness of ignorance by opening the book of nature to rational inquiry. He acknowledged that, quote, philosophy has of late been branded as the cause of mischief by those whose interest it is to promote ignorance and slavery in the world. But he insisted that, quote, there is no inquiry whatsoever more calculated to inspire every good disposition of the heart or more rationally wean the mind from narrow and confining prejudices. By the late 1790s, these were no anodyne sentiments. Walker was throwing in his lot with those who continued to uphold the values of the Enlightenment, even after conservative writers such as Edmund Burke had blamed enlightened intellectuals for the violence and upheaval of the French Revolution, and the rising tide of reaction had driven Priestley himself into exile in the United States. In his account of a journey from London to the Lake District in 1791, Walker recorded having passed through Birmingham shortly before the riots in which a loyalist mob attacked the homes of Priestley and other dissenters. Alas, he bewailed, why should ingenuity and science be yet contaminated with the illiberal alloy of bigotry and intolerance? Walker's loyalty to Priestley ran deep. In the late 1770s, he had hailed Priestley's discovery of a test to measure the purity of the air as a vital contribution to public health. By locating the sources of foul and unhealthy air, Priestley's test encouraged the ventilation of city streets and dwellings, hospitals, ships, and factories. Priestley had also discovered a form of air even purer than the normal atmosphere, his so-called deflogisticated air, or what we would call oxygen. Walker saw this as promising new therapies that would be superior to the superstitious healing practices of the past. Priestley's pneumatic chemistry had seemed to Walker to offer a vision of the power of scientific knowledge to liberate humans from disease and from the tyranny of ignorance and superstition. The connection with Priestley had a further importance for Walker in that the former had worked out in some detail how to enlist the aesthetic instincts of his audiences to communicate science to the public. Priestley was interested in the rhetorical impact of experimental demonstrations and their role in general public enlightenment since his work of the 1760s on electricity. In the preface to 
his history and present state of electricity of 1767, Priestley wrote that the pleasure of studying the science resembles that of the sublime, which is one of the most exquisite of all those that affect the human imagination. A reviewer of this volume noted that the author's description of the Leiden jar was written, quote, under the influence of the surprise and terror excited by a new and unexpected feeling of a most peculiar kind. The Leiden jar then delivered not only the physical shock of an electric discharge, but also a kind of aesthetic shock, an exquisite surprise and terror identified with the feeling of the sublime. As a, a number of historians, including Jessica Riskin, Simon Schaffer, and Paolo Bertucci have shown, the Leiden jar assumed a central role in a public culture of display that mobilized the passions of its audience as it enlisted them in experimental practice. When he turned to pneumatic chemistry in the 1770s, Priestley continued to be interested in evoking these feelings. Experimental demonstrations of new gases were interpreted as sublime in two senses. First, the displays were revealing powers of nature that elicited emotions of wonder and astonishment in human spectators. And second, the revelation of these powers at this time was seen as part of the process of enlightenment under the, the superintendence of divine providence. For Priestley, this, his, this historical process was itself a sublime prospect. It showed how experimental science contributed to the, to the diffusion of knowledge and the advance of human freedom. Thus, Priestley celebrated as, quote, sublime and glorious the prospect of an indefinite continuation of scientific research, which would endlessly push back the boundary of darkness and ignorance. In the first volume of his experiments and observations on different kinds of air of 1774, he quoted a passage from Alexander Pope's essay on criticism about climbing in the Alps, where as each peak is surmounted, further vistas appear for contemplation and further peaks to be conquered. In the same way, Priestley claimed, the history of experimental science offered a more inspiring spectacle than the messy and contingent history of human society. This was because it manifested a steady, providentially guaranteed progress toward general enlightenment, a process not usually evident in the chaos of civic history. The sciences, Priestley declared, quote, in which we see a gradual rise and progress in things always exhibit a pleasing spectacle to the human mind which bears a considerable resemblance to that of the sublime, end quote. Now, in making such use of this term, the sublime, Priestley was obliquely evoking the most influential discussion of the term in English in the period, which was, of course, Edmund Burke's philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful of 1757. For Burke, the central aspect of the experience of the sublime was astonishment. To quote Burke, and astonishment is that state of the soul in which all its motions are sus suspended with some degree of horror. So for the Burke, 
terrifying things were sublime. Dangerous animals, the ocean, darkness, or vast spaces. More generally, anything that displayed the powers of nature could produce the requisite state of astonishment. Earthquakes, thunder, even the light of the sun were also sources of the sublime. Burke's analysis was deeply rooted in medical theory and moral philosophy, as well as in the traditional analysis of the arts. Aris Serafianos has called it a kind of affective materialism. It provided a physiological vocabulary in which issues of spectatorship, sensibility, beauty, and pleasure could be discussed. Now, Priestley must have known of Burke's treatment of the sublime, but he did not directly mention it in his own discussion of the topic in his course of lectures on oratory and criticism of 1762. Priestley presented a much more complacent treatment of the subject than Burke's. He identified the sublime with the elevation of the mind to contemplate superior things, and he detached it from the feeling of fear or apprehension of pain. Priestley thereby discarded the most radical and innovative aspect of Burke's analysis, though he retained a similar list of the kinds of things that were likely to evoke the feeling of the sublime. For Priestley, the experience was a positive one, though distinct from straightforward pleasure. It was caused by sensations that, to quote Priestley, relate to great objects, suppose extensive views of things, require a great effort of mind to conceive them and produce great effects. Even silence, if it fixed the attention and stilled the mind, might partake of the sublime. Priestley noted that authors who invoked the sublime were more likely to be admired and remembered than those who merely aimed to please, since they represented nature, quote, in the grandest and noblest point of light. He particularly mentioned the sciences of astronomy and natural philosophy as tending to exhibit the noblest fields of the sublime that the mind of man was ever introduced to. Now, Walker's invocation of the sublime in connection with his own public lectured, lectures shared these connotations. Exposure to that which was intrinsically grand and noble was supposed to have an uplifting effect on the minds of spectators. Walker shared Priestley's views about the providential character of scientific discoveries and the moral value of public education. He lauded the rational knowledge of God that came from the study of nature. And he praised his audiences for their sensibility and politeness in recognizing this. From the earliest editions of his lecture syllabus, Walker was promising the men and women who attended that they would experience, quote, the most rational and sublime parts of knowledge, in particular through the study of astronomy. His apparatus was said to be appropriate to, quote, convey to the mind the most sublime instruction. Though he disclaimed the, quote, enchantments of the theater, the thunder of eloquence, and the sublime of inspiration, this was, I think, to direct attention away from the lecturer towards what he was showing. 
Walker insisted that the lecturer's role was simply to open the book of nature before his audience. Nature itself, the cosmos at large, was the sublime force that would work its moral effect with minimum rhetorical mediation. As the European magazine noted in a review of Walker's career in 1792, the simple but animated manner in which these sublime ideas are explained is one of Walker's first merits. To serve this aesthetic purpose, Walker enlisted specific technical means. The Idurion was the apparatus he constructed to communicate to his audience the sublimity of the cosmos. There are apparently several uh, versions of this apparatus, and we have uh, a couple of visual depictions, which I'll show you later, but we have no precise uh, description of how this thing worked. Essentially, it was a vertical, and as the descriptions insisted, transparent orrery. Now, an orrery, of course, was a mechanical device that used gearing and moving parts to replicate the motions of the sun, the moon, the earth, and the other planets in the solar system. Traditionally, it was a tabletop apparatus displayed in small public gatherings or in domestic spaces, such as a very famous scene painted by Joseph Wright in which family me members gather around such a demonstration. I'll show you that image again later to, to remind you of it. The crucial innovation of tilting the plane of the orrery into the vertical allowed it to be seen by a much larger audience. Made sufficiently large, it could be mounted in the proscenium of a theater and viewed by an audience of hundreds. And this is what Walker did. He basically made an orrery rather like this screen here. Walker apparently had some such apparatus already in the 1770s, and it may have had precursors in the uh, apparatus of earlier public lecturers like Benjamin Martin or James Ferguson. Another version of around 15 feet in diameter was made for him by William Allen, a Birmingham instrument maker otherwise known for his electrical machines. A subsequent version was said to have been 20 feet or more in diameter. The mechanism was transparent in the sense that the planets moved without visible means of support. They were represented by glass globes lighted from within, and they rotated in their orbits against a dark background, conveying the effect of heavenly bodies moving unsupported through empty space. A further significant aspect of the Idoranion, which has not so far received any commentary, was its name. Walker christened his apparatus in 1782. And this surely owed something to the sensational display in London in February 1781 of the similarly named Idufusikon. This was a project of the Strasbourg-born artist and theatrical designer Philippe de Luthebourg, who had been brought over from Paris to work on the staging of David Garrick's productions at Drury Lane. Lutherburg was credited with considerable improvements in scenery, painting, and lighting, bringing to the London stage dramatic effects pioneered by his Parisian employer, the theatrical and fireworks impresario Giovanni Servandoni. Lutherburg's Idu Physicon presented in miniature 
an enhanced version of the theatrical experience. It used effects like those in its creator's stage designs, and it drew a comparable degree of attention. The I2 Physicon was essentially an illuminated box, about 10 feet wide, 6 feet high, and 8 feet deep, which was placed in front of rows of seats in a darkened room. Within the box, viewers saw cutouts and models moving without apparent cause and brilliantly lit to portray various scenes. The scenes included landscapes, cities, battles, a shipwreck at sea, and finally, the scene of Satan mustering his armies from Milton's Paradise Lost. Lighting was provided by argand oil lamps and colored filters, which were adjusted to change in hue and intensity to represent dawn, sunset, moonlight, and lightning. The visual scene was accompanied by harpsichord music and other sound effects such as thunder. In exhibiting this invention, it's been suggested that Lutherburg was aiming to compete with the popular scientific shows in London at the time, including that of the notorious sex therapist James Graham. I hope you know about him, otherwise I'd be happy to tell you something. Uh, and the electrical showman, Paolo knows well, Gustavus Catafeltro. Both of these were active in London in the early 1780s. If so, if Lutherberg was trying to compete with the scientific shows, Adam Walker returned the compliment by appropriating some of Lutherberg's techniques for his own scientific display. The most obvious borrowing was the name. Iduphysikon derives from the Greek for image or icon of nature. Iduranion translates as image of the heavens. Like Lutherberg, Walker emphasized the name of his invention in large letters on the posters advertising his show. I'll show you some of those later as well. But in addition to the name, Walker also adopted some of Lutherburg's aesthetic effects. He used special lighting and parts moved by a hidden mechanism, evoking the contemporary fascination with mechanical automata. Walker's displays, like Lutherburg's, proceeded by exposing a series of discrete scenes the curtains closed between each one and parted again to reveal the next. Walker also accompanied the display with harpsichord music, played on a version of the instrument called the Celestina, which he claimed to have invented. In later versions of the Iduranion, he introduced colored transparencies to project additional effects, such as the signs of the zodiac, onto the surface being viewed and he punctuated the lecture with performances of songs and hymns to God's glory as revealed in the heavens. These techniques contributed to the overall aesthetic effect of Walker's astronomical lectures. Lutherburg's Iduphysikon was closely linked with the cultivation of the sublime, which was generally said to be evoked by the kind of phenomena he reproduced therein. Thunder and lightning, moonlight and sunset, dramatic natural scenery, all of these are archetypal uh, examples of the sublime. Lutherburg sold his invention to another entertainer in the mid-1780s and resumed work as an academic painter, uh, producing biblical scenes, natural landscapes, and depictions of industrial sites, all of which were hailed as representations of the sublime. 
His paintings shaped Walker's perceptions even of his native Lake District. In uh, his, Walker's narrative of a journey to the North in 1791, he mentioned Lutherburg as one of the artists whose renderings of the local scenery had captured its sublimity. With his Idoranion, Walker had done the same for astronomy. By tilting the plane of the orrery into the vertical and enlarging the apparatus, he had opened a window on the universe for a theater audience. The tabletop orrery had tended to domesticate astronomy, confining it to the limited compass of a room and emphasizing the order and regularity of the Newtonian clockwork. It did not readily convey the awesomeness of the cosmos at large. Walker had found a way to do this, which seemed to owe something to Lutherburg's theatrical flair. Uncanny automatic motions, objects apparently suspended in space, dramatic colored lighting and music, these were the techniques by which astronomy could be made into a sublime spectacle. The Iduranion served Walker and his family well for more than half a century. William Walker is said to have made his first presentation with it in a town in Berkshire when he was only 16, and he subsequently toured widely throughout the British Isles. After his brother's death and then his father's, Dean Franklin Walker became a virtuoso performer with the apparatus, continuing to display it in London theatres and in provincial locations through the late 1820s. An observer of his lectures wrote in 1826 that D.F. Walker was distinguished from his father and his deceased brother by a more polished and easy delivery, a graceful familiarity which secures the attention of the young and the unlearned, and an elegance of diction and general manner which greatly heightens the effect of his discourse to every class. Lutherburg, by contrast, trod a more precarious path to social respectability. As Ian McCalman has documented in a series of articles, Lutherburg's career often teetered on the brink of disgrace. His charisma and rhetorical fluency, his fascination with alchemy and mesmerism, and his association with such notorious charlatans as the so-called Count Cagliostro laid him open to charges of quackery. Lutherburg's career shows how insecure the identity of such an artist and impresario might be. Walker, on the other hand, managed to anchor his social identity more securely and to pass on a respectable livelihood to his sons, notwithstanding his humble provincial origins and early associations with Priestley's radicalism. The Iduranion achieved a secure place among the popular shows and spectacles of the period, documented, for example, by Richard Altick. London at this time was obsessed with novel technologies for visual spectatorship. So much so that James Chandler and Kevin Gilmartin have dubbed it the Ido Metropolis, the city of images. The Ideoranion took advantage of this metropolitan fascination with spectacular display. As an adaptation of the theater for the purposes of public education, it was said by one observer to be among the most respectable efforts to extend the beneficial uses of the stage. Walker's mobilization of the aesthetics of the sublime had played a significant part in this achievement. 
His son's advertisements promised that by means of the Iduranion, quote, the sublime and awful simplicity of nature is daringly imitated. And there was a certain degree of daring to the performance. Walker and his sons articulated a cosmology in which each star was regarded as itself a sun, the center of its own solar system. The idea had something in common with Descartes' notion of multiple vortices, uh, where each star is surrounded by swirling, uh, a swirling vortex of matter carrying the planets around it. But Walker explained that he was not trying to uh, revive the discredited Cartesian idea of the vortices, but instead was envisioning the interstellar whirlpools as composed of light itself, which he identified with cosmic fire or phlogiston. It was a conception that could have had many sources in the 18th century, and Walker mentioned the works of the astronomer John Mitchell and the Durham cosmologist Thomas Wright. But the daring came in when this, physio when this cosmological vision was extended into a fully developed doctrine of the plurality of worlds. In other words, when the suggestion was made that each planet in each solar system could be inhabited. It was William Walker who laid this out most explicitly in his Epitome of Astronomy, as illustrated by the Iduranion, which went through at least 24 editions in its author's lifetime and was kept in print by his younger brother thereafter. Here, the Iduranion was used to introduce the possibility of life on other planets in this and other solar systems. The planet Mercury, for example, William Walker noted, had without doubt, quote, inhabitants adapted to the heat of his situation. Venus experienced rapid seasonal changes, which showed, quote, that provision has been made for inhabitants, that they might not suffer by their vicinity to the sun. The warmer regions of Mars, he declared, are of nearly the temperature of Russia. Okay. Uh, William Herschel's recent discovery of what he called the Georgian planet, which we know as Uranus, had increased the possible abodes of life in the solar system. And beyond our own system, Walker ventured, innumerable stars must be supposed to be, quote, destined for the same noble purposes, viz. that of giving light, heat, and vegetation to the various worlds that revolve around them. The theme of the plurality of worlds was a subject of widespread speculation in this period, as Michael J. Crow and others have documented. Herschel's own conjectures on the subject had emerged in a paper published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in 1795, in which he proposed that the sun itself had a cool interior capable of supporting life. Earlier thinking on inhabited worlds by such writers as Bernard de Fontenelle and by English provincials such as Benjamin Parker of Derby and Thomas Wright of Durham were also well known. Such ideas were, however, theologically contentious. Wright had proposed that belief in celestial inhabitants was consistent with 18th century physico-theology. He claimed that God's benevolence found its fullest expression in populating the entire universe. On the other hand, skeptics could draw on a tradition as old as Lucretius 
to argue that no divinity could be particularly concerned with the fate of one planet when so many millions of inhabited worlds existed. Seen in this way, the doctrine of plurality of worlds could be a weapon against Christian orthodoxy. Thomas Paine certainly took it that way in his Age of Reason, 1793, in which he gleefully concluded that the idea of life elsewhere in the universe destroys the basis of Christian faith, quote, and scatters it in the mind like feathers in the air. Percy Shelley was led to similar reflections by Adam Walker's lectures at Eton College, and he reached the same conclusion. To quote Shelley, the plurality of worlds, the indefinite immensity of the universe, is a most awful subject of contemplation. He who rightly feels its mystery and grandeur is in no danger of seduction from the falsehoods of religious systems. End quote from Shelley. But this was not the way Walker or his sons claimed to be presenting the matter. Rather, they invoked the category of the sublime to provide a more reassuring and reconciliatory framework for the plurality of worlds idea. William Walker acknowledged that the notion of millions of suns nourishing their own worlds is infinitely too great for the human mind. Contemplating the prospect of inhabited planets extending throughout infinite space, quote, the astonished fancy turns round and is entirely lost and sunk in the abyss of nature. But the bewildered imagination was ultimately brought back to a realization of divine design, to the comforting reflection that a benevolent providence was regulating the entire system. The philosophic observer, Walker insisted, would conclude, quote, that the apparently disturbing and destructive powers are secondary and subservient, while those of the preserving and meliorating kind are primary, continued, and universal. There was no reason for the mind to dwell on the melancholy and distressing aspects of the cosmic vision when a broader perspective would disclose the entire system of pure and perfect benevolence. The Walkers surely realized that they were treading on dangerous ground here. Adam Walker was certainly very aware of the reactionary turn taken by British politics in the 1790s, which had limited the tolerance previously extended to religious skepticism and dissent. It might be significant that D.F. Walker changed the description on his brother's advertisements of the final scene of the Iduranion lecture in which the plurality of worlds was discussed. The plurality of systems agreeable to the ideas of Fontenelle was replaced by the probable construction of the universe exhibiting every star as a sun. Perhaps it was a precaution against conservative objections to label the plurality of worlds idea merely probable. But the main rhetorical tactic used to preempt such criticism was frequent invocation of the sublime. As the novelist Thomas Love Peacock noted, Astronomy was to serve the purpose of elevating the mind, as the Iduranion lecturers have it, to sublime contemplations. By regularly reiterating the sublimity of their astronomical vision, Walker and his sons 
neutralize the existential terrors or atheistic implications that might otherwise accrue to the science of astronomy. They insisted on the edifying quality of the science, offering their audiences the reassurance of a providential order underlying the cosmic design. By these means, the motions of the bodies of the solar system, the orbits of comets, even the large-scale structure of the universe and the possibility of life on other planets became appropriate subjects for presentation to men, women, and even children. Mariah Edgeworth's novel, Frank, of 1825, contains a scene in which two children attend an Iduranion lecture. They see the Earth suspended in space, the moon reflecting the light of the sun, and the alignments of the three bodies that produce eclipses. It's easy to lose sight of the creativity that made it possible for such scenes to become family entertainment. A few decades later, in an issue of All the Year Round of 1863, Charles Dickens satirized a child's response to such a spectacle. I quote this lovely passage from Dickens. All this time, the gentleman with the wand was going on in the dark about a sphere revolving on its own axis 897,000 millions of times or miles in 263,524 millions of something else's until I thought if this was a birthday, it were better never to have been born. Now, we can recognize the tradition here which leads to, um, you remember Carl Sagan's? famously ridiculed lines about billions and billions of stars. But we need to get behind the satire that accrued to this kind of rhetoric as it became hackneyed and cliched to understand why it was forged and why it was so innovative at the time. I've been arguing that Adam Walker's invention of the Iduranion and the rhetorical framework within which he deployed it deserved to be recognized for the creative achievements they were and to be understood in the context that made them meaningful. For Walker himself, they were crucial resources, allowing him to negotiate the passage between priestly and provincial radicalism and metropolitan respectability. He was thereby able to maintain a program of scientific education in the service of public enlightenment in the face of the political reaction that spelled the end of the enlightenment as such. The Iduranion gave him the means to secure a place amidst the theatrical shows and spectacles of Regency London, while also insinuating potentially disturbing, even subversive, ideas about life on other planets. I've suggested that the Iduranion was the technological counterpart to a vocabulary of the sublime, an apparatus for communicating the noble and edifying spectacle of the universe to a theatre audience. It appropriated a series of technical innovations from other forms of mechanical display, including those of Lutherborg, who seems also to have suggested the device's name. Brilliant lighting, automatic movement, musical accompaniment, and the presentation of a series of discrete scenes were among the techniques used to appeal to viewers' sensibility and enhance their experience. What they experienced was understood in terms of the sublime, an emotional response that was construed physiologically but also ontologically as symptomatic of the human condition in the vastness of the cosmos. In some ways, the sublime functioned in the place of what Bruno Latour calls the crossed-out god 
of the modern world. It named the human response to powerful forces, huge distances, and vast expanses of time, which could be understood theistically, but did not have to be. Invoking the sublime was thus a way to negotiate such issues as the plurality of worlds, with their unclear and hotly contested theological implications. Viewers could draw their own conclusions, as Shelley did, while the lecturers took cover behind a providential language that would reassure even a country vicar like Parson Woodford. The rhetoric was thus well adapted to mask the dislocations and ambiguities of Walker's own career path, a path that took him from provincial obscurity as a self-taught assistant schoolmaster to a respectable and renowned place as a popular scientific educator in London. It was a path trodden, I've suggested, with the aid of this remarkable contraption known as the Iduranial. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2010 as part of the distinguished Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Schulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Professor Galinsky spoke on April 7, 2010 at the Whitney Humanities Center.